The reading for today is from Genesis 29. Now it starts halfway through verse 14 where Jacob uh, marries Leah and Rachel and going through to verse 30. After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife. My time is completed, and I want to lie with her. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob laid with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to his daughter as her maidservant. When morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, What is this this have you done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? Laban replied, It is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so. He finished the week with Leah. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. All right. What a fun passage to jump into this morning. I'm excited for it. Now, so... When I was at uh, Bible college, I remember uh, we had these things called sus groups. Uh, it's not because they were suspect, uh, but rather because they were an opportunity for uh, future ministry workers to suss out what was happening in you know, different ministry spheres and different places around the country, around the world, and all that sort of stuff. And my third year at college, I became the leader of the Vic Sus Group, standing for Victoria, because that's where we're from originally. That's where we thought we were going to go back to, and so we would get together and pray and all that sort of stuff. But... As it turns out, uh, God had some twists and turns uh, in that plan, literally where we thought we were going to be going south, and he had us going north. Uh, because as we were checking out possibilities for Melbourne, like I said, where we thought we were going to go, nothing was really opening up. I went back, had a chat with one of my former ministers, and he said, well, there's this guy in Gosford that's looking for a guy. Despite the fact that I had to look up where Gosford was on the map, uh, that was indeed what God had planned for us. And now, again, we are not as we look towards the future, heading south, but rather heading further north again. Sometimes the Lord throws all sorts of twists and turns our way, and it is a great comfort and encouragement to us to know that God is with us no matter what. And we heard last week that that was God's promise to Jacob, and we see in this passage some twists and turns come his way. 
perhaps some stuff that he didn't expect. And we're going to think a little bit about how that can maybe encourage and uh, edify us as we think about what it looks like to follow the Lord through the turns and twists in life. So, quick recap. We've seen Jacob uh, betray his brother uh, and deceive his father at the plans of his mother. He's been forced to flee from his homeland where he's grown up and now he's on his way to his uncle Laban's house about 800 kilometers north of his hometown. So, ooh, my clicker... Ooh, guys, sorry. Uh, Matt, you might need to run this to the back there. Uh, we've got him going... Uh, all the way up, and we've got, we had this brief stop last week that we saw, where after a couple of days travel, the Lord appears to him, pronounces upon him the blessings that he gave to his great grand, that he gave to his grandfather Abraham, but adds this extra little bit where it says, I am with you, and will watch over you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to this land, and will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Right? Laban, sorry, uh, Jacob has been a bad guy. He's on the run, but he meets with God, and now it seems that things are looking up. This incredible promise. All right? And the first half of this passage, uh, the first half of chapter 30, seems to confirm that things are indeed looking up for Jacob. So, uh, we've jumped from the green circle now all the way up to the red circle at the top. That's how far we are jumping forward in time and space. So it says, He saw a well in the open country, with three flocks of sheep lying near it because the flocks were watered from that well. Stone over the mouth well was large. When all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone away from the well's mouth and water the sheep. Then they would return the stone to its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob gets there and confirms every suspicion that we have about wells. For it says, My brothers, where are you from? We're from Haran, they replied. He said to them, Do you know Laban, Nahor's grandson? Yes, we know him, they answered. Then Jacob asked them, is he well? Yes, he is, they said. And here comes his daughter, Rachel, with the sheep. If you want to meet a girl in the Old Testament, where do you go? You go to the well. All right? Like, not even figuratively, just literally. You go to the well. Look, he said, the sun is still high. It is not time for the flocks to be gathered. Water the sheep and take them back to pasture. Is he trying to get a little alone time with Rachel? Here is he like, hey, dudes, like, just get to move on with your job and clear out because the girl's coming, all right? Not sure. Okay? They say, we can't, until all the flocks are gathered, the stone has been rolled away from the mouth of the well, then we'll water the sheep. Possibly they do this because they're not meant to get in a fight with each other about who gets the well and all that sort of thing. Whatever. The point is, we've got Jacob at the well as Rachel arrives. He's talking with them. Rachel came with her father's sheep, but she was a shepherd. When Jacob saw Rachel, daughter of his uncle Laban and Laban's sheep, he went over and performed what at youth on Friday night we called the equivalent of youth boys lifting six chairs because they think that will impress the youth girls. It says that he went over and rolled the stone away from the mouth of the well and watered his uncle's sheep. Remember, this was the stone that was heavy and big and we all had to wait for everyone to get here before we do it. And Jacob's like, I see the girl. Oh, God! Don't know if this impressed her or not, but Jacob kissed Rachel and began to weep aloud. He told Rachel that he was a relative of her father and a son of Rebekah, so she ran and told her father. Okay. Now remember, he's come to Haran in order to find a wife from his mother's family. This was the entire point of him coming. So we've got him fleeing from the bad things that he's done, but then receiving God's grace and God's mercy, this incredible promise being given to him, even though he totally didn't deserve it. And now he gets to Haran, and within minutes of being there, he finds exactly the thing that he's been looking for. And even then, when we have Laban come out, it looks like more good news. Laban, his uncle, comes out, 
his sister's son, he married to me, and he hurried to meet him. He embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. Then Laban said to him, you are my own flesh and blood. Alright? So he's got the blessing. He's got in the right place at the right time. He's found the girl. He's welcomed by his uncle. Things looking good. Yeah? But... Let me get this next little bit, and it's sort of, mm, no, hold on, if we, when we think about this, maybe things aren't quite as, as rosy as what we might imagine. Because it says, After Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing, tell me what your wages should be. Now, at first, this looks like, oh, Laban's a decent guy. He's not just trying to, you know, get some free labor from his family, right? You know, this, is, this seems like a good and honorable move for our guy Laban to make. Until you sort of stop and think about what happened last time somebody came from Abraham's household to Laban's family and the way that played out a little bit differently. You remember that Laban uh, has these two daughters. This is the setup for what's going to come. But as we see here, last time around, we we had him this this sort of big reception. uh, But back then, oh, sorry, I feel like I've missed one of my slides here. Oh, I have. It's dropped out. I'll have to fill you in. All right, so he says, what should we just be? Now, previously, when we'd had the servant of Abraham come to find a wife for Isaac, Jacob's dad, all right, he gets there, and he's brought camels, he's brought gifts, he's brought all sorts of stuff. And it, the text says very specifically, when Laban gets there, he notices, oh look, my sister Rebecca has bracelets on her arm, she's got a nose ring, it looks hot, you know, this is all great. And he says to the servant, hey, wealthy, blessed one of the Lord, come, come, come. They prepare a feast for him, he's this honored guest, and he's just the servant, right? But that's not the reception that Jacob's getting here, is it? it suggests that maybe Laban knows something about Jacob being on the run. He hasn't come bearing camels and gifts and all the rest of it. And so while, yes, on one level, he seems to be doing a decent thing in saying to him, hey, I should, I should pay you for this labor, it's interesting that Laban's always interested in the money side of things. And that's, that's kind of the setup here, the, the important thing. He's not welcoming Jacob as the heir to the Abrahamic promises and blessing and vast wealth that Laban has already seen, he's treating him for the first month or so much more like a household servant and then talking about wages. Right? So it's a very different sort of setup. And I think that might explain something of what Jacob does when he finds, when we get uh, here in just a second. So, Laban had two daughters. The name of the elder one was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. We've only met Rachel so far, now we get mention of Leah. She had weak eyes. What does that mean? Well, back then, clearly, in the ancient Near East, uh, bright eyes, or having life in your eyes, sparkling eyes, was a big deal. And oftentimes it's possible that women would have been veiled, and that might have been the only thing that you could actually see of a woman at times, to understand what they're like and, and, and all that sort of thing. So essentially, this is describing two of the ob- obvious physical features, okay? Leah, weak eyes, not looking that great. Her form is not mentioned. Rachel, apparently a hottie like her Aunt Rebecca, has got a good form and bright eyes. Okay, clearly, Rachel is the one that they're focused on and gets the attention. And Jacob, of course, was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you for seven years 
in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now, on one level, this is a powerful declaration, right, of just how much he loves her. I'm, I'm so in love with you. I will work for seven years. That's like one and a half times the sort of maximum payment that we'd see later under the, the time of Moses that you're allowed to make uh, for a wife, that sort of idea. He, this is an extravagant offer that he's making here. But it also is possibly the offer that you have to make when you're in kind of a weak position because you're on the run and because you don't have any visible signs of wealth and you've got this promise from God that you're going to have blessings and all that sort of stuff. And so, yes, does he absolutely love Rachel? Is this a sign of how much he's willing to give in order to get her? Yes, is it also a a symbol of the fact that he is kind of in a weak bargaining position here as opposed to last time around? Where Isaac's, where the, the servant of Abraham came and they're pouring out gifts and Laban's like, well, yeah, man, take my sister. Now, also, I just want to mention really quick, it's really clear here that this is a little awkward for our contemporary times when we see the men just bargaining over the fate of the women like this. It, clearly, they're being treated like objects to be dealt with and that these men have the rights to do with them as they please. It's always good to remember that just because the Bible describes it happening doesn't mean that that's the Bible saying that this is what should be happening. Uh, but it certainly was the cultural practice at the time. Now Laban, he agrees and says, look, it's better that I give it to you than to some other man, now that he's got the deal, the promise of seven years' labor on the table. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get to Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Now, that's really sweet. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. But there's no accident that that declaration there is immediately contrasted with the next line which is give me my wife my time is completed and I want to make love to her literally in the Hebrew Hebrew, it's I want to go into her like he was not messing around here as far as communicating to his future father-in-law what was on his mind and what he was hoping for so again thinking about Jacob he's made this declaration but of seven years, he's faithfully served her. It's passed so quickly, so great was his love for her, but now the time has come and he's like, look, I want my wife. So Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. But evening came, he took his daughter Leah, in case you weren't sure, that was the wrong girl, okay, and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her, and Laban gave his servant Zilpah to his daughter as her attendant. Jacob has gone for seven years. There's now a real sense of urgency. I, I, I want to marry Rachel. And in that moment, during the wedding feast, a switch is pulled, and instead he sleeps with Leah, not Rachel. Now, some of you might wonder, is that even, like, how could that even happen? Right? Well, look, no electricity back then. It's a wedding feast. There's some drinking going on, I'm sure. Uh, There's a veil, you know, for for women to be wearing back then. But what's really, really clear here is that, obviously, right, doesn't say it, but Leah had to be in on this. And at that point, the, the poetic justice of this starts to really shine through, Right? Jacob is the younger brother who betrayed his older brother by deceiving his father and dressing up as his brother in order to get the blessing. Now, Jacob is deceived by the older sister who's dressing up and pretending to be the younger sister at the bequest and plans of her father, who is, of course, Jacob's mother's 
brother. It's just, it, it's, it's too much, right? Like the, it's, it's really interesting. In Genesis, it, there's not a lot of moral commentary. Like there's not a lot of where the writer of Genesis says, uh, and this was bad. Okay? He just sort of lets it sit out there and you can't help but notice it. And it's just confirmed a little more by what Laban says next, right? When morning came, there was Leah. Just an amazing line, right? So Jacob said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel. Didn't I like, remember the deal, man? Like, we were pretty clear. Why have you deceived me? This is the equivalent of, of like an ancient Near Eastern dude going like, What the? Just, what is going on right now? And it, it's a really intimate betrayal, right? Like, this is the crazy thing about it. We know Jacob has not been a good guy. We know Jacob as a deceiver. We know that he's taken advantage of his elderly blind father. And even still, the betrayal here is of such an intimate nature that you still feel for Jacob, right? Like, despite everything he's done, and despite the obvious poetic justice, there's still a sense in which I kind of feel bad for my guy here. And Laban's just like, well, it's not our custom here <laughs> to give the younger daughter in marriage before the elder one. You know what else wasn't customary? For the younger brother to steal his brother's blessing, but cool. Finish this daughter's bridal, bridal week, then we will give you the younger one also, again, that commodifying of women, in return for another seven years of work. Jacob, of course, again, further evidence, I think, of his weak bargaining position that he really can't argue or take any action against Laban here has to say, okay, he does so. He finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her attendant. Jacob made love to Rachel also, and his love for Rachel was greater than his love for Leah. And he worked for Laban for another seven years. Now, you saw where the kids felt before. The kids are going to be thinking about what it is... uh, you know, to, to lie and how painful and difficult that is. And we're going to absolutely see next week how the consequences of this move that Laban pulls here is going to have ramifications for generations to come and it's going to set the sisters up in a crazy battle royale of pregnancies. You don't get to say that phrase too much, but that's what it is. But we're not really... I don't want to focus too much here on the deception nature. I, I think that in the course of this passage, it's fairly obvious that, that lying is bad, Right? But I find it really, really interesting, like I said, the way that the narrative is sort of set up, the way the story is set up. So we get this sense of Jacob's been a bad guy, we know this. But now he's been blessed by God and things are looking up. It looks like things are going to work out for him. And then we have this crazy twist where it looks like it's all falling into place. Yes, he's had to flee, but he's been met by God. He's now starting to worship God. He's got the girl. He's going to stay with his uncle Laban for a few days, just like Rebecca thought he was going to. And then he's going to come back to Canaan with the girl that he was meant to marry, and things are going to work out okay. And instead, he's away for 14 years, ends up getting a wife that he never intended to and didn't particularly want, and finding himself at the mercy of his uncle, who turns out to be the true master deceiver in this whole family dynamic. It's a pretty massive twist and turn for a guy to get right after receiving all these incredible promises from God. And it's just going to be thinking, right, about what it means for us to be Christians who have the promises of God now, and particularly for us over this last 
two years to have to endure all these twists and turns that we never saw coming. Now, there's no doubt with Jacob, and it's super clear in the passage, that the twists and turns he endures are poetic justice. It's hard not to see the Lord's hand involved in all of this. It's too perfect to not think that, man, God was directing things here so that Jacob would receive a taste of his own medicine in this. And there's a that sense of justice for us as the reader, even as we're shocked at what's actually taken place. But just because Jacob's twists and turns are a result of his sinful decisions doesn't mean that that's how it always works out for us. I mean, I would say that Jesus endured some things that weren't twists and turns necessarily for God and his plan, but certainly were not what we might have expected. Jesus lived a perfect sinless life and was betrayed by those religious experts and leaders who should have known better than anyone who he was and the truth of what he was saying. And so twists and turns are just a part of the reality that we have in this world. So what I want to do is just throw some of the promises of God that we get. So Jacob's got this great promise in the passage here of, I will be with you no matter what, I'll bring you back to the land, all that sort of stuff. But let's look at some of the promises that we get here in Christ. As Matt prayed earlier, Jesus promises that all who come to him, he will give you rest. And you'll find rest for your souls. That we'll have eternal life, famously in John 3.16. That our names are written in heaven. That if we believe in Jesus, we will never die again in that eternal sense. That all good things, God works for those, so that all things God works for the good of those who love him. That nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, our Lord. That we are all children of God through faith in Christ. And of course, that I will be with you always to the very end of the age. You might think, because of all these promises for us as Christians, that our life would be set well, the things are looking up for us. When you come to Christ, when you know Jesus, you've got all these incredible promises, these amazing blessings that God is for me, who could be against me, all this great stuff, and yet, has it been the experience of anyone in this room that following Jesus has not meant that your life has been full of twists and turns? I doubt it. This is what this world is. It, it's a roller coaster of good and bad, blessing and and pain. What's promised to God's people in eternity and all of the amazing things that we have is in relation to God now don't cancel out the fact that we're also promised oppression and difficulty and persecution and hardship and challenges in all sorts of different ways. And as I look at the story here of Jacob, it's just, it's just amazing to me that this happens to him after he receives this incredible blessing where you just think that, man, I guess, in God's mercy, he's just going to give Jacob this, this blessed sort of situation. Isn't the mercy of God amazing? Well, yes, he is. And he's going to get there and he's going to bring him through all this, but that doesn't mean that there's not pain and difficulty along the way. And for all of us who've come through this COVID stretch, I wonder, how have you handled the twists and turns that have come over these last couple of years? How are you feeling going forward, as we start to re-enter back into something that might look like normal or working back towards those things, how are you feeling about changing again and what things might look like? Are you, are you, are you filled with anxiety for the future and, and what it's going to bring? 
Because I think this passage is actually a word of comfort for us in this, that God has promised that he will be with us no matter what, but that doesn't mean that we're not going to endure all sorts of craziness along the way. And, and, and what Jacob has here, and we're not told whether he held, holds on to it particularly strongly or not, but what he clearly has as he endures all of this madness and betrayal and deception, which again, he's wrought himself, he's got this promise that God is with him no matter what. That, that God is, is something outside of his situation, an anchor that he can cling to, to ground him as he endures all of this. And we're going to see. There's, there's more craziness to come. And so I think the reflection for us coming out of this passage this morning is to see that, that big picture of what God is doing in Jacob's life and what that means for us also. Sometimes we are going to suffer because of the bad choices that we make. Sometimes we might be the victims of poetic justice. Maybe we need to be. But other times, we are going to be at the mercy of other people's bad choices. And twists and trials and turns are going to come at us even though we've done nothing wrong. But God's promise remains that he is with us through it all, and that's what we have to cling to. That's why we read our Bible. That's why we come to church. It's why we go to growth group. It's why we pray and talk to the Lord. It's why we sing praises in Him. It grounds us in those things outside of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. And I'm going to pray that we do that even more now. Father God, thank you so much for Jesus and all of the promises that we have through Him. We thank you, Father, for His loving kindness to us in extending a mercy to us that we did not deserve, that we do not deserve, just as Jacob didn't deserve the blessings that were poured out upon him. We pray, Father, that we would be a people who cling to and remember your promise that you are with us no matter what, and all the blessings that you pour out upon us as we face the crazy twists and trials of this world. Father, whether we are suffering the consequences of our own poor choices or whether we are a victim of the choices of others, may we, Lord, not be discouraged that our life isn't perfect yet that it's gone a different path than the way we might have expected it to. And instead, Lord, may we cling to the knowledge that you are with us no matter what and that you have all of these things in control. And it doesn't change the fact that your word is faithful and true and we'll look forward to eternity with you no matter what. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.